This is an E-Impulse mini-series, Push Dose Pearls, with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to E-Impulse. We are super excited to have Chris Adams back as our ED clinical pharmacist at UC Davis, and we're excited to announce a new ongoing series focused on ED pharmacy. We're going to call it Push Dose Pearls. These will be brief podcasts that address questions that we all have regarding medications in the emergency department. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being here. Welcome back, actually. Dangerous. <laughs> Thanks. I love being here, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be joining you and talking about fun stuff. Okay, Chris, antidotes in the emergency department. Every ED doc loves a good antidote. What is your favorite antidote to use in the emergency department? Man, you're speaking my language now. Antidotes are, <laughs> are right up my alley. And I can't tell you how much I enjoy talking about high-dose insulin and euglycemia. Super fun topic for me. Okay, so let's get into that. So, I mean, these could probably have an episode of their own, but let's talk about it. Let's start with a suspected beta blocker overdose in a patient presenting with bradycardia and hypotension. These are patients that really have uh, terrible outcomes historically, and uh, they take a lot of aggressive therapy frequently. And so when I started practicing high-dose insulin, euglycemia was making its way into practice. And so it's it's one of those things that I learned as I was just starting my uh, my own clinical practice. So it's it's a bit of a fine dance between the risks and benefits of these uh, the seemingly dangerous intervention. And to me, that's that's a really interesting idea to discuss. You know, I definitely see this in kids, <laughs> calcium channel blockers, and the grandparents, and then a toddler hanging around. That is a little bit of a setup for need to have this particular antidote. Tell me when, at what dose and what type of symptoms would you say like, okay, it's time to go down this pathway that's, that's let's be honest, it's a little bit intensive. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that patients that are refractory to your standard initial therapy options, such as just fluids and fluid resuscitation, would likely be a situation where you start to consider it. Um, if, if a patient is hypotensive and is not responding to fluids, your next go-to, generally speaking, especially if you're not really sure what the etiology is here, is likely going to be some vasopressors. Once you've filled the tank, you're going to turn to vasopressors. And if a patient's still refractory or if they're requiring large amounts of vasopressors, I think it's, it's totally reasonable to start down this road of high-dose insulin euglycemia. Okay. How do we do that? It's a, a bit of a scary initiation. Um, and so it can be an extremely aggressive insulin regimen. And generally speaking, pharmacists are, you know, they're supposed to be conservative and, and try to keep us in the realm of safety. Uh, but in these situations, I find myself having to talk people into these more aggressive insulin uh, therapy options. So generally speaking, the agreed upon starting dose is one unit per kilo IV bowls of regular insulin, which is just crazy that to think is about. Insane. And then after that, you immediately follow it with a one unit per kilo per hour infusion. So these are massive doses that we're all very uncomfortable with. This is a real thing in the United States. Is that ideal body weight? Are we just using the actual weight of the patient? Actual body weight. Got uh, it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've done this before, and it feels super scary. And why does this not cause hypoglycemia? There's two parts here. First, um, in addition to the insulin, obviously, we're going to initiate uh, dextrose. So usually that's a one gram per kilo IV bolus dose of IV dextrose. 
as well as a one gram per kilo per hour infusion of either D10 or D20. So that's obviously going to be a bit protective, but in situations, especially uh, calcium channel blocker overdoses, you actually have part of the pathophysiology causing a a net uh, hypoinsulinemia, meaning patients are actually not producing their own insulin. So part of the calcium channel blocker toxicity causes blocking of the production of endogenous insulin, resulting in this like very severe and refractory hyperglycemia. And so in situations, especially in situations where you have a calcium channel blocker overdose, like verapamil or diltiazem, in those situations, you can start with this one unit per kilo dose of that IV regular insulin, and it won't touch their blood glucose. So it's, it's a pretty incredible refractory hyperglycemia. And then how often are you checking blood sugars in, with this protocol? Ideally, uh, and, and especially initially and during titrations, usually it's going to be in, in the range of 15 minutes to 30 minutes. 15 minutes is pretty aggressive and, and sometimes unreasonable, especially when you're shorthanded um, and, and asking a nurse to do a Q15 minute blood glucose check, especially over a long course of time. That's that's challenging. Um, so uh, ideally 15 minutes, but it's probably in the range of 30 minutes. And, and once you get stabilized on a dose, you can bump that out to one hour. But as you make those titrations and, and during the acute phase, it's probably best to do it every 30 minutes. And how long do patients generally have to stay on this? Extremely variable. It's frequently related to the amount of toxicity, the amount of drug that was actually ingested. It can be as short as just 12 hours or even less for that matter. Um, but it can be upwards of two, three days. And and that's when things get really challenging is uh, trying to make the decision to pull back uh, as well as how aggressively you can pull back when making these down titrations. Now, we're lumping these together, calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. Is there any difference in the treatment of the two? In terms of the regimen uh, associated with uh, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and high-dose insulin euglycemia, Oftentimes, you don't need to be nearly as aggressive, especially initially with your dextrose to maintain a a safe uh, level of blood glucose. In a beta blocker overdose, you frequently will require large amounts of dextrose because there isn't that pathophysiology causing a decrease in endogenous production of insulin. So oftentimes with beta blockers, more dextrose is required, calcium channel blockers, uh, less dextrose. Chris, can we go back to when should you start it? This is obviously a major undertaking for somebody to do at the bedside, um, and especially out in the community emergency department where you might not have all of those resources. We want people to really know what are the right indications for that. Would you say, if you say you know that somebody has ingested a calcium channel blocker overdose, what quantity would be most worrisome? for that, what quantity of medication ingested, and then what would be the symptoms where like, okay, we got we to gotta think about this now? The amount of drug depends obviously on the type of patient. If we're talking about a pediatric patient, a, a fairly small amount or in terms of the number of tablets ingested um, can make a huge difference, especially with your non-dehydropyridine calcium channel blockers like verapamil and diltiazem. So when you've got a, a relatively small dose, but a, a you know a, a toxic dose, couple tablets of of those medications, that you start you start to really be concerned about potentially going down this road of high do, high dose insulin glycemia. Um, I would say that it's probably unnecessary to initiate that therapy before you actually start to see symptoms. So when a patient becomes severely hypotensive and and is requiring those vasopressors, that's when I think pulling the trigger on this would be an appropriate option. 
before that, it really it's it's unclear when the right time is to pull the trigger. Uh, initiating therapy prior to when a patient actually develops symptoms certainly has not been formally evaluated, and so it, it seems like it's it would be very challenging from my perspective to initiate that therapy before you actually start to see a, a critically ill patient. In adults, same story, but larger doses. Um, and, but these medications can be fairly dangerous for apomildiltiazem and, and large beta blocker overdoses for sure can be can be challenging. And uh, morbidity and mortality with these medications uh, and their overdoses and misadventures are, are fairly high historically. So it's, again, as soon as you start to see hypotension and that hypotension is refractory to your standard therapy options, that's when I think that it would be appropriate to start this therapy. So what about entrolipid? When do we need to go there? Challenging question. Um, and and similar to um, high-dose insulin euglycemia, it's not clear when that option is It's the right time to pull that trigger. With high-dose insulin euglycemia, you're, you're giving back a, a, a something that we produce endogenously. With intralipid, you are giving a large quantity of this thing that can screw up a lot of different lab values, metabolic processes. And so it becomes a fine balance between giving something that might be beneficial and potentially screwing up a lot of your markers that you're going to use to to treat this patient over the long uh, over a long period of time. So I think that it's it's certainly in your wheelhouse in terms of the kitchen sink option when you are, you know, throwing everything you can at patients, but I I don't think that intralipid therapy is something that we turn to frequently because it also has some pretty significant challenges associated with it when you start to administer it. How does intralipid work? The idea, there's, there's several different um, leading theories, but the standard theory is that it's a lipid sink, meaning that you uh, provide a large amount of lipids. And for medications that are uh, lipid soluble, they are drawn to areas of high lipids. Uh, and so it's almost sequestering that toxic agent in a location that where it can produce less toxic side effects. So it's, it's almost like um, uh, a detoxifying effect. And so you mentioned it can screw up some of your labs. Is it also potentially dangerous? In some ways, it can be, especially with repeat doses, if that becomes potentially necessary. Processing large amounts, a huge volume of lipids given over a very short period of time certainly has its own metabolic challenges. And so when giving these large doses, there certainly can be you know, significant side effects. The argument would be, though, that those side effects associated with providing lipids are far less than the actual toxicity associated with the the medication or agent that was ingested. Okay, let's move on to an antidote that has become sadly so much more common in my own pediatric practice. You know, we just had a kid that we had to use naloxone on recently. The dreaded need for Narcan in the PZD is really sucky. <laughs> um, but it is becoming more common. And I actually think that it's one of the more exciting antidotes out there because it's really a way that so many people, any of us, even out of the emergency department, can save a life and antidotes that can be used in the hands of everyone. Tell us, what are kind of some of your thoughts on naloxone and its use in the emergency department? What are some new exciting ways that we can use naloxone? Yeah, and I have to say that um, besides the need to use more naloxone more frequently, the idea of using naloxone really hasn't changed much. There's nothing super novel specifically about naloxone, but it does happen. It, it is happening more frequently. 
I'd say that especially with there being so much more availability uh, and um, adulterant of you know street drugs with fentanyl, we are seeing a lot more of it and the doses, the higher doses of naloxone may be necessary. So in general, I think that naloxone really has a, a significant role to play in any situation where you have an unexplained uh, patient who may be demonstrating a toxidrome that might be associated with opiates. It's certainly worth a try. The idea that you could use this medication to stave off a potential intubation or an ICU admission is a huge plus. You could really save a, a whole bunch of resources on patients when using naloxone empirically in a situation where you just don't know if the patient may have been exposed to this or not for that matter. Chris, what is the higher dose that you recommend with the prevalence of fentanyl increasing? It's all over the map. The doses, especially in adult patient populations, in a serious critically ill patient population, I would say starting with two milligrams of naloxone is totally reasonable. But uh, going forward after that, repeat doses may become very necessary. And when these new cases of fentanyl started happening a few years back. We started seeing doses of four, six, eight, ten 10 milligrams of naloxone being required to actually wake somebody up. So large doses and repeat doses, especially if there is a significant concern or the, the clinical picture is matching an opiate overdose. When you give your second and third doses, are you going from two to four to eight type of situation or are you just doing two, 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 two? Generally, we're just dose stacking. So two, 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 two. And then for me, it's like consider a drip because I get tired of writing orders. <laughs> sure, sure. The, the challenge with drips is one, they have to be prepared. There's nothing like a, a pre-made drip available. And preparing those drips actually needs to happen in, in a clean IV room technically. Mm. And so it becomes a bit of a challenge in getting it to bedside in a timely manner. The other challenge associated with naloxone infusions is that like you're going from giving push doses of two milligrams three, uh, or four or five or whatever to a infusion that's running over the course of an hour. So you're taking, you know, these push doses of two milligrams and switching over to infusion that may be running at, say, 10 milligrams over the course of an hour. And that's a fast infusion. So realistically, these patients aren't getting nearly as much naloxone as they would if you were just giving them big pushes. So when I was taught, we were given tiny doses to start out with, you know, 0.2 or whatever. What are some of the downsides to giving these big doses? Absolutely. I think you bring up an excellent point. The art of using naloxone, I feel like, has been um, slipping away over the course of the last decade where providers would start with these smaller doses to see if they could just initiate like a bit of a wake up or improve respiratory function and and not bridge into like a full blown withdrawal situation. So I think that utilizing these small doses, albeit the logistics of giving those small doses is a little bit more challenging. I do think that there's a significant role to play in clinical practice in a situation where you have a, a patient that is a known opiate user, um, giving them small doses to you know, wake them up a little bit or provide them a little bit of a support from a respiratory standpoint is definitely a good place to start. So that way you're not throwing them or precipitating a major withdrawal syndrome. Yeah. And for me, it's those patients that are somnolent, but not, you know, completely sort of apneic and arrested from their overdose. If they're if they're really if it's a life or death situation, then I'm probably throwing bigger doses at them because I'll deal with the withdrawal symptoms later. But in those patients where they're just super somnolent, I'm worried about them protecting their airway, then maybe starting slow is a good way to go. Absolutely. I totally agree. Those bigger doses of two milligrams and above should be reserved for the patients where 
you're starting to think about, or you're probably going to intubate them or they're critically ill. But in patients that you just have a little bit concern about, those smaller doses are certainly a good place to start. And you can always add on more doses later on. And then clinically, if you do use those big doses, throw a patient into some pretty terrible withdrawals, you can't really treat them with opioids because you've just given them naloxone. So what's your go-to treatment there? Yeah, that's a great point. You can be extremely aggressive with opiates and potentially provide them a little bit of support. So like large doses of fentanyl so that you can, you know, it wears off pretty quickly and you don't find yourself in a lot of trouble by giving them a long acting opiate. Um, There are some providers that have turned to the use of buprenorphine or suboxone in these situations to provide the patient a little bit of support because we put them into withdrawal. But those two are are probably our best options in terms of treating the symptoms associated with a precipitated withdrawal. Large doses or aggressive doses of opiates such as fentanyl or utilizing buprenorphine. In our young children that haven't had enough time yet to get addicted to the opiates but end up with ingesting one or two tabs um, that can be really significant, do you uh, just go for the higher dose on them because we're not worried about withdrawal or what's your recommendations in the toddlers? That's fair. I mean, you bring up a great point in that these patients probably are not going to have these severe withdrawal syndromes. uh, And so just giving them large doses is is totally legitimate. I think that the same rules probably apply in in patients that you are you're thinking about intubation. Large doses certainly have a role to play. I, I don't think that you're in any risk of throwing them into withdrawal. So large doses probably are totally reasonable in those situations as well. Chris, I had another question also about the difference between intranasal and IV. So oftentimes the patients have been given intranasal in the field, and then by the time we get an IV on them, we may be giving them another dose. Is there a difference between like 4IN versus 4IV? Absolutely. IN is considered roughly equivalent to uh, an IM injection. Um, However, it's the onset of action of IN naloxone that worries me. It's an excellent option in a situation where you don't have IV access and that's going to prevent you from administering a a potentially life-saving medication, but the onset of action of that IN or nasal naloxone is pretty slow. And so we may not even be seeing any effects by the time the patient reaches the emergency department if they receive an IN administration of naloxone. So major differences, you're not getting nearly as much uh, availability of that medication to the patient itself. So larger doses generally are indicated if you're administering an IN. However, um, you're also likely going to experience a significant delay in the actual uh, effect that the medication is providing. So I actually think this takes me to my favorite novel component of naloxone or Narcan, and that is that we are giving this out in the emergency department for at-risk patients. And there's a lot of programs that are set up across the United States. We've talked about this here on our podcast Chris, can you tell us just real briefly about our program and how that works in the emergency department to give out naloxone? The naloxone program that we have set up uh, is functioning through California's subsidized or funded program where we are dispensing uh, free naloxone kits to patients. So this is not being billed by insurance. These are just being given out freely to patients that we see that are high risk within the emergency department. So this type of program is funded, again, by our state, um, but it depends on which state you're in. There may be funding available. There are grants that are offered at the state level for these type of programs. So you'll have to check with your local authorities to see what type of uh, availability there are for naloxone programs. We house a separate naloxone store in our emergency department, 
and provide that free of cost to patients that demonstrate a potential need for this. So these are recently incarcerated patients or a patient that has a history of overdose, a patient that um, may be experiencing the need for buprenorphine. Those type of patients are excellent candidates to receive a free naloxone kit. And these are nasal naloxone kits that come with two doses. These are also great to provide to the parents of children or adolescents that come in for overdoses or to friends and family of patients that have experienced overdose themselves. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's my favorite aspect of Narcan and how it has really changed the field. It's just a really fun thing to see. Okay, this has been great, but let's come back to this in another episode to talk about more antidotes. That sounds great. I'd love to come back. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. 